Let's go to Psalm 28, nine verses, and uh, as ever, uh, just nine short verses, but so much is in here, we'll mine out a little of that and apply that tonight. Psalm 28 is a Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give them according to their work. And according to the evil of their deeds, give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are dependent on you just to stay attentively focused to your word. We are absolutely dependent upon you for your word, a psalm written by a king of Judah from 900 BC, uh, for that to be relevant to us today as it is your word. We depend on the power of the Spirit. So we ask you would open our eyes and open our ears and that you would change us through the preaching of your word. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Now, there must have been a time in your life, oh, yes, please be seated. Um, this isn't uh, that time when Ezra read the law and everybody stood the whole time, um, but uh, there must have been a time in your life when you were urgent to communicate with somebody. You had sent out a text message and you were anxious to hear back for whatever reasons. You were going to meet with somebody, you had to hear from somebody, there was an emergency. Uh, you were waiting for that text to, to come back. You were waiting for a call. Uh, you were waiting for somebody hoping that you had been heard. And one such case that captures, I think, the desperation with which David wants to be heard of God goes back to October 4, 1918. It's near the end of the world of the First World War, and United States troops are participating in a massive Allied offensive that is going to push the German army to the breaking point and, and bring us to the end of the war. And as the way things go in, in large engagements, a unit of the United States Army, the 77th Division, uh, got cut off and was trapped with, uh, actually surrounded. They had gone too far and had been separated from the rest of the Allied offensive. And so they found themselves 
under artillery fire, American artillery fire, and some of the soldiers with the 77th Division had been killed by American artillery fire. So there was desperation and urgency to communicate a message and to make sure it was heard. Radio communication at the time was not possible. Laying out communications lines to make contact with friendly forces was not possible. Their only hope lay in their last remaining carrier pigeon. And so a message was strapped to the uh, carrier pigeon saying what the position of this unit was and, uh, and that our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. And so they attached that message to the pigeon and set the pigeon free. And uh, of course, the German troops knew exactly what pigeons were being used for, and they were as diligent at shooting down pigeons as they were at shooting uh, at allied troops. So they opened fire on the pigeon, hit it, and the pigeon fell to the ground and um, in, in the process lost one leg and was blinded in one eye. And then uh, that um, pigeon started fluttering its wings and uh, got airborne again and actually made it through enemy fire, flew an additional 25 miles and uh, got the message to the right people. Um, in a quirky, weird thing that only happens in big events like this, the pigeon was later decorated with the Croix de Guerre, and uh, the pigeon uh, became an American folk hero, and the uh, remains of that pigeon have been stuffed and are on display, still standing on one leg um, in the Smithsonian, so the next time you happen to be at the, uh, uh, I think it's the American History Museum on the Mall in Washington, D.C., uh, drop in on that, on that pigeon. It has the French name, Mon Cher on me, my, my dear friend. Well, what was it uh, that was going on here? There was certainly desperation in the communication. Please, you have got to hear this. You're firing on us. Please stop. And as David wants the Lord to make a distinction between him and the wicked, the American army was very anxious that American artillery would make a distinction between them and, and the enemy. So these are very parallel things. And as David is writing this psalm, we don't have a lot of information about what is specifically going on in this psalm. But if you've read through First and Second Samuel, you'll know that uh, David had a rather tumultuous life. So David is in trouble. This is probably the result of a betrayal. David was a king. David was a general. And both environments have their ambitious backstabbers uh, over keeping you looking over your shoulder and wondering what's going on behind you. And so uh, probably as a result of a betrayal of some kind, of which uh, a few are recorded for us in Scripture, he cries out in desperation. And in the first verse, there's a very interesting contrast uh, the ESV and the KJV both uh, render this, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Now, rock in this case may actually mean more than just a boulder. It may actually mean something like a cliff, something like a high position, someplace where I am up, away and out of reach of the enemy. I am in a safe location on top of this rock. And then he says, do not be deaf to me. 
uh, actually the, um, the phrase repeats in Hebrew. It says, um, uh, do not be silent to me, do not be silent to me. And that's really, please, Lord, do not be silent, please. I, I must hear back from you. Because if I don't, I am as good as those who go down to the pit. And I think you see a contrast here between the height of the secure place and the pit, which represents just the opposite of the height, a place that is inescapable. Think of the pit that Joseph's brothers dug for him and cast him into and uh, left him there. And he was unable to get out of there until they pulled him out and, and uh, sold him into slavery. So David is also talking about a pit from which there's no climbing out and uh, something that wraps up with it the idea of despair, of hopelessness. So there is this high place of security contrasted with this low place of hopelessness. And so as we go into Psalm 28.2, we have this, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. This isn't, oh, by the way, Lord, um, if you have some time, I, I have a request. That's, that's not David. If you've read David, he is an intensely emotional individual. This is David almost certainly in tears and suffering deep anxiety as he's saying, Lord, I cry out to you, hear me. And so he says this, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Now, in David's time, the temple had not been constructed yet, and the, uh, the Ark of God was still in a tabernacle. And of course, if you recall the, uh, the architecture of the tabernacle, which is the, the, the plan is essentially the same as that of the temple that would come in the next generation in Solomon's day, the tabernacle is a representation of heaven. And David is saying, I cry out to your most holy place, is what he's saying. And what is that holy place but a picture of heaven, that place where the great high priest could only go to one time a year during the, um, the um, ritual of Yom Kippur and make an atonement for the people of Israel. And so uh, this reminds us that as David reaches out his hands towards the Holy of Holies, so we can do the same. In fact, we can not only reach out our hands towards a copy, a model, a likeness of the Holy of Holies, but according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we have this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is a sense in which as Jesus is not in a representation of heaven, but in the throne room of heaven, as we saw in our call to worship. And there is a sense that we who are in Christ are with him there. We have the privilege of going directly into the actual holy place and making our requests known and making our requests known to one who is sympathetic 
to our weaknesses, sympathetic to our flaws, who understands us uh, in every way, deeper than we understand, more deeply than we understand ourselves, and still loves us and desires to hear from us. So as David reaches out towards the Holy of Holies to that tent, to, towards that tabernacle, we have access to the throne room of heaven. Now coming back to Psalm 28.3, David is asking that there be a distinction made between him and the wicked. Now, you know and I know that there is a sense in which all of us are wicked. All of us are in need of a savior. But there is still yet a distinction between those who struggle with their sin and those who desire to honor God and those who have no desire to struggle with their sin. You can look at it this way. Uh, Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa were both born sinful humans in need of a savior. But somehow their lives ended up very, very differently. And I think the, the contrast is, is rather obvious as you have uh, one who is guilty for, of, of mass genocide and another who devoted her life to relieving the suffering of, of others. And so there is that sense that you have those who struggle with their sin and those who perfect their sin. And uh, you've perhaps met those people. You talk to them about spiritual things and they simply scoff because they, they know they're sinners and they're proud of it and they've developed it and they, they sit around thinking, how can they sin better, more efficiently, get more uh, out of people? And so these uh, people that David speaks of, these workers of evil, think of craftsmen of evil, master craftsmen of their trade. Who, uh, who are so good at committing evil that uh, they could almost um, have a school to teach other, other people how to sin more effectively. Maybe you've been in on those conversations where people are talking about really how to sin better. And then in verse 4, David is asking them, it's not asking them, is asking God to give them according to their deeds, to, uh, to let their evil intentions fall back on them. This is similar to what you read in Proverbs chapter 1 where Solomon is talking to his son. And we don't know which son it is. Presumably he had actually quite a few. But to at least one of his sons, he's saying, you know, do not get involved with the wicked. They kill for dishonest gain and they do not know that what they are doing is going one day to fall back on themselves. And uh, as a history teacher, uh, I, I do love to point these things out as, as, uh, as we go through uh, the Second World War and so on. But there was a time when Hitler, Tojo, Mussolini, Stalin, all of them um, men of, um, of extraordinary evil were some of the most powerful people in the world. Hitler committed suicide. He didn't even see the end of the war. Tojo was uh, taken prisoner and he was hanged as a war criminal after the war. Mussolini, when things were going badly for him, he attempted to escape to friendly Italian forces, was uh, discovered on en route and was summarily executed. Stalin did survive the war and in the early 1950s he had suffered a stroke 
and uh, all the people of political power in the Soviet Union were gathering around him, hesitating to call a doctor, really thinking, let's not interfere with a good thing. And they, they simply let him die. And uh, that uh, Stalin was feared, but Stalin was hated. And so this is, uh, so what happened to these men who murdered their way into positions of authority, who were ambitious, who were responsible for the sufferings of others, uh, all of them died a very unenviable death and were remembered after, not as heroes, but were remembered after as villains. And why does David ask for this to fall upon them? Well, verse 5 tells us something about the nature of the wicked, and that is they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. These are people who have no thought of the Lord. It's not that they're necessarily being deliberately irreverent, although sometimes that is the case, uh, but they have no fear, no, no concept of who it is that they're provoking, the one before whom they will ultimately answer. No understanding of the power and the all, the one that, as we read earlier, uh, angels by thousands, by ten thousands, bow down before him, the one before whom the seraphim have to cover their faces because of his glory. And uh, of him, they simply have no thought. And because of that, there is no fear of God. There is no reverence for God. There's no concern for judgment because for a time, things go apparently well for the wicked. And of course, that means there's no concern for others except what I can gain from manipulating others. What can I get out of others? And then when they become no longer useful, they're discarded in, in some way. And these are the ones to whom Jesus will say as he talks in Matthew 25 about how he returns in judgment. He separates the sheep from the goats. And he tells the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they say, why? And he said, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. And he goes on. And they say, when did we ever see you this way? Parentheses. If only we had known, we would have worked this out to some advantage. If we'd known that was you, we would have done something uh, to at least pretend that we're reverent. Uh, sometimes the wicked do put on a good show of religion. That's another aspect of wickedness. Um, and so uh, he says, well, you didn't do this to the least of my brethren. You didn't do it to me. And when Jesus says, you didn't do this to the least of my brethren, of course, remember, just a few verses earlier, he is commending the sheep who did these things. And to them, good works are such a part of their sanctified nature that they didn't see anything in it. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? We didn't know that was you. And he said, well, when you did it for the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Do you see how Jesus identifies with the least of his brethren? Certainly, uh, you know, he, he identifies with those who suffer. And that's an important element to remember as we're looking through this psalm. In verse 28.6, there's a turning point. David it goes from, please do something about these wicked people, 
please hear me so that I'm not like those who go into the pit. And then suddenly we have, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard my voice. Uh, He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. God has heard, blessed be the Lord. And so the response is, uh, from God is one of great sympathy as we uh, see with, with Moses, as, as God calls Moses and uh, commissions him to go to Egypt to, uh, to release the Israelites from a long period of slavery and from bondage, the Lord tells Moses, I have seen their affliction. And he says, I have heard their cry. Excuse me. I have heard their cry. This is a God who is eminently sympathetic to the suffering of his people. Whether that is uh, events that have taken place in your life, the uh, life of this congregation, uh, believers around the world who currently um, suffer persecution, And speaking of persecution, what does the Lord Jesus say to Saul on his way to Damascus? Uh, Paul, uh, at the time known as Saul, was a well-known persecutor of the church, so well-known that after his conversion, it took Barnabas uh, a significant effort to convince other Christians that his conversion was real because uh, hardly anybody would believe that this man could be saved, this man could be converted. So it's an encouragement to be in prayer for the persecutors. Certainly we've been praying for Afghan Christians. Let's pray for the Taliban too, that God would save them. Um, and, and coming back to this, when uh, Paul is blinded by that light, he's not asked by Jesus, why do you persecute my people? Um, he's asked, why do you persecute me? And so, as we read in Hebrews, that uh, Jesus is not untouched with our infirmity. He is, in fact, that the, the positive way to say that is he is deeply touched by our suffering, and by what we're going through. And so in uh, verse 8 of Psalm 28, David says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts. I am helped, my heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Now, God gets our attention through adversity. When things are going well, sometimes we don't pray as intensely as we would if when, when things are, are going badly. And when God hears, we uh, ought to respond with thanksgiving. The Gospel of Luke chapter 17 records the ten lepers. And you'll remember how ten lepers saw Jesus and they cried out to him in faith, Lord, hear us, Lord, save us. It's, it's that desperation. I have this terminal skin disease that has cut me off from my loved ones, cut me off from society. Would you please heal me? We've heard you have this power. And Jesus does. Ten of them, he, he simply says, go show yourself to the priests because this is in accord with Levitical law. Among the things the priest did was uh, check for skin diseases. That was uh, one of his specialties. And he was the one to declare you clean. So the 10 of them are healed. One comes back, falls down at Jesus' feet, and thanks him. 
And the, uh, the punchline and almost the slap in the face to the audience hearing this is he was a Samaritan. He was one of them, one of those outsiders. And uh, so this is uh, 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 something, a reminder to you and me. I, I don't know if it's a perfect ratio that we're only thankful 10% of the time. Um, but when I look at myself, I, when I look at please versus thankfulness, it may work out about nine to one. Um, but uh, we do need to be more mindful to be thankful, more aware, more open to God's blessings. And you've met those people who are aware of God's blessing, aware, constantly uh, thankful. And that's a, a habit that has to be cultivated. It has to be developed. It has to be intentional. And uh, I work with such a person. Notice I didn't say such a person works with me. I said I work with such a person. Um, a, uh, our Spanish teacher is uh, uh, a very uh, ecstatic Christian, and uh, one day she greeted me, good morning, and I said, oh, good morning, and she said, are you not ecstatic that it's Monday, and I said, uh, well, I never really thought of it that way, <laughs> but she's thinking, look, I'm in a Christian school, I get to talk about Christ to my students, I get to teach the language that I love, and so on, and, and well, why don't I think that way, why don't I see those opportunities, you know, because sometimes we're so wrapped up in our problems uh, that we, we sometimes forget to look out and see how God has, has greatly blessed us and the, thankful, the thankfulness that should be at least more a part of my life. And uh, I suspect uh, the lives of, of all of God's people. Now, moving on to verse 8, we have this. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Now, David is writing this psalm. And he is the anointed king of Israel at, at this time. So almost certainly this is a self-reference. Self but this is not just exclusive to David. God is merciful to all whom he has marked out as his own. All who have placed their faith in Christ are among his people. And then verse 9 Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And this is a beautiful thought that repeats in the book of Isaiah in chapter 46. And uh, Isaiah is a prophet who comes along just a, a few generations after David. And one of the things Isaiah does is he compares the nature of idolatry with uh, the, the true God, and he sometimes has some uh, various ways of expressing the foolishness of idolatry. But here he makes a comparison in uh, Isaiah 46, verse 1, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And part of what Isaiah is getting at here is these idols of wood and of stone are heavy. They're burdensome to carry. You see, a false god has to have something carry it. And then what's the difference? Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. 
who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. Did you, did you catch the reference to that and how firm a foundation? Even to old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. And, uh, and then Isaiah's a very, very poetic prophet, and he's just getting warmed up there, so I recommend you read the, the rest of that. But instead of gods that need to be carried or burdens that need to be carried, it is God who carries us and our burdens. And so it is one thing that is uh, clear from Psalm 28 is that God hears and God will deliver. But I think we want to be careful to avoid a simplistic formula that, well, if I'm in a difficult situation, all I have to do is pray and in a snap of the fingers and a blink of the eye, all my problems go away. Uh, in fact, I was talking to a, a friend, his, um, uh, his children are roughly the same age as our children and uh, they kind of grew up together. And he said, well, one of my boys came to me and said, I can't wait till I turn four. Why is that? Because when I turn four, all my problems will go away. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that child is much older than four and I think has learned better. Uh, so our problems don't go away because uh, we can look at Daniel. Daniel was a godly man. Daniel was a godly prophet. He did the right thing. He was framed by some jealous co-workers and cast into the lion's den and was miraculously rescued. Now, John the Baptist was a godly man. He did the right thing. He was uh, incarcerated by uh, an angry wife of a man whom John was calling out on his adultery, and he was eventually beheaded. So did God not deliver John the Baptist? Well, this is where eternity makes the difference, because without the promise of eternity, the rest of these promises, in fact, the whole of life is a meaninglessness. And there are some atheists uh, that have come to this conclusion. Richard Dawkins talks about how we simply suffer before a pitiless universe and then we die. And, well, bad luck, I guess. And so that's uh, uh, what we are reduced to without eternity. But because of eternity, something happens that's very, very different. Now, we open with the call to worship and that the context of that was who will open the scroll. And as we continue through the book of Revelation from that point, the scroll is being opened one seal at a time. And then uh, John sees this in Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, reading the, um, I'm reading the wrong passage here. Okay, verse 9, verse 9. I have the, um, my, the, the scriptures are infallible, my notes are not. Uh, but uh, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read that God delivers his people? God cares about his people? God is concerned about the suffering of his people? 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I believe that prophecy is still in the working, uh, even today. Uh, probably in a week or two when it comes time to do the persecuted uh, church updates for the call to prayer bulletin, we will hear of perhaps believers who um, have been faithful unto death this day and not know about it for another week or two or maybe even a month or more. Um, but this is, this is still, still going on. But they have been rewarded for their faithful stand. They have been delivered. See, in, in Psalm 28, we have a temporary rock, uh, if I'm reading this rightly, a temporary high place and a temporary pit. And what we're dealing with here is the eternal high place uh, from which there will be no harm, no death, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering. For them, that is over. It is in their past, and they are being rewarded for what they have done on this earth. Because as we heard this morning, our works done here do matter towards eternity in terms of the effect, the, the blessing that they might have towards others uh, that might be carried on to generations well beyond our, our lifespan. And so uh, with that also comes eternal reward, which these are receiving. As for those who go down not to a temporal pit, but to an eternal pit, we have the contrast made in Romans 6.23, which I think we're all familiar with. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And wages are simply what you've earned. A gift is something given to you that is unearned. It is given to you because the person giving it to you likes you or loves you in some way and wants to do something special for you. We receive the gift of eternal life not because there's anything intrinsically special or good about us that obligates God to be good, but simply because he is good, because he is eternally loving, he gives us this gift of eternal life. And so we can look forward to that eternal high place. So trust God. He does hear you. And he doesn't tell us his plans necessarily. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I agree. Uh, but God has never shown me that plan. He doesn't show us the plan. He shows us the promises. And he says, the promises, these are what you do. You trust me. You navigate by the promises. You leave the plan to me. The secret things belong to the Lord. But he's revealed to us enough to know what it is to obey him. And one of those promises which he gives to Joshua as he takes over from Moses and by extension to us, is this, I will not leave you or forsake you. 